0: Hello, and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, and once again, I'm really delayed on these. And I, I guess I apologize for that, but I'm going to stop making excuses. It's just uh, reality is this is going to take me longer than I had thought um, because of my my overall work schedule and life schedule right now. But that's, uh, that's okay. So anyways, what we have... Today is a is a is, is a pretty focused episode, uh, and therefore maybe it'll be kind of quick. Um, it's it's basically dealing with the Battle of Antietam. Um, I think all the documents in this hundred-page slice of this uh, Civil War anthology that I've been working my way through this four-volume Civil War anthology are all the documents are from September 1862. So I think it's it's probably one of the most focused sections. There may be others coming up. I'm not sure, like the Gettysburg Campaign or something, but uh, this is certainly uh, up to now the most focused set of readings we've had all around one battle. And a lot of the documents here, there's 20, 24 of them, I think. Yeah, 24 of them. But they, the vast majority of them are some sort of memoir or reflection on the Battle of Antietam itself, mostly from Northern perspectives or Maryland perspectives. Because of course, uh, a lot of the grassroots views, the civilian views that we get here from um, from civilians in in Maryland, right? Um, and you know, not too much on politics. We got a couple of political issues floating around. There's one is like the fate of McClellan, who was popular in the army, and and Lincoln still had some faith in him, but he, he was losing faith among other people in the cabinet. So there's that. And then. Even though we don't really have any voices on the slavery issue it's like from former slaves from frederick douglas uh, abolitionists we don't have those kinds of documents in this particular setup but of course the culmination of the battle of antietam uh is uh, of or that campaign is the emancipation proclamation or the the preliminary emancipation proclamation which was um, basically, the the threat to uh, free all the slaves on the first of January, which he of course does, and that'll be a document. I guess we'll look at in the very next volume. Um, so, like I said, there's not uh, a whole lot to uh, to dissect, except you know, let's just look at what voices we have speaking on the Battle of Antietam. um But yeah, politically, um, I guess there's there's also the issue of why invade. Uh, Maryland I, I guess it's something I I never thought that much about of course it's you know everyone who studied the American Civil War knows this you know there's these two invasions um, but the question of why do this and how I was struck by like how poorly prepared Lee seemed to be and how it was almost like a whim it, was, it, was, it seemed like kind of a, actually a ridiculous strategy I'll get to that in a little bit um, yeah let's let's just jump in and see what we got here um, so the first document we have here is salmon p chase uh his from his journal and he's reflecting on a cabinet meeting uh really surrounding the issue of mcclellan's fate uh the question of who's in charge of the army this is after the second battle of bull run of course and so there's a lot of disorder there's a lot of un- not, it's not clear on who's in command you got pope with the army that was defeated at the second battle of bull run you have McClellan around Washington. You have the returning troops from the Peninsula campaign. So command structure is a little bit of a mess, and and the question is, there's really no one to replace McClellan. Although some of the cabinet members did offer up names, and these would people people who would lead the Union Army right, in coming months, like like Hooker, for instance, was one, and and he comes off pretty good in this set of documents actually, due to his uh, exper- you know, his role in the Battle of, of Antietam. But anyways, that was uh, just a, uh, you know, I, I, it's good we have these documents because I guess there's not really very good records of these cabinet meetings or if they exist, they're so boring that uh, the reflections later on, the journals by people like Chase or Seward uh, talking about these are, are very, very useful sources for the inside look at uh, at the government. Um, we got followed this up by another uh, McClellan to his wife document. We've had a lot of these letters and we're gonna have a couple more here. And this is, again, him worried about, this is him worried about how to get back in command. And he does come off, I wouldn't say Machiavellian, but a little bit cynical in that it seems his main goal, his main goal is to preserve his reputation um, and to somehow get back into command. He's got sort of a plan to do that, to reorganize the army and, and be the right person at the right time to be in command of the entire army. And I guess that sort of does work out because, of course, he does is victorious in the, the Maryland invasion campaign. But um, well, that's all I'll really say about that document. Um, McClellan's letters to his wife tended to be pretty uh, short, and they tended to be not his best look, to be frank. I and mean, But it's also probably him that is more honest. So let's get to the invasion of Maryland itself. Uh, the document we have speaking to that is Robert E. Lee's uh, letter to Jefferson Davis. We're going to look at one more of those, but he he basically just says to Jefferson Davis, I'm going to be invading Maryland, and that's the way it is. There doesn't seem to be a real coherent strategy. That's what I was referring to to before. Like, uh, I guess we can compare this later to the Gettysburg campaign, which I think there was a little more of a plan there. I I don't get the sense there was one here. It's just after the Battle of, of... the second battle, Bull Run, what they would call Manassas, right? What the Southerners called Manassas. Uh, th- the goal is to invade Maryland. And uh, I guess the justification was to aid secessionists in Maryland, lo- you know, people loyal to Confederacy there who wanted to secede but were f- suppressed by the Union, uh, by Lincoln's tyranny and that kind of stuff. Uh, as we'll see in these documents, it doesn't seem that many people in Maryland at this point are very sympathetic to the Confederacy. But it seems also he, he he complains, like, we're not really ready to do this. It's such a weird kind of letter because he says we don't really have supplies. We're not really prepared for a full-scale invasion, but the alternative is not to do anything. So let's just go. And it's it's striking how Lee doesn't seem to have a plan here to... I guess he's still thinking kind of in Napoleonic terms. Maybe that's the whole problem with the Confederate military and, and so much as the Union leadership too is this idea let, like let's win in a decisive battle. And if you can do it in Maryland so much the better and force some kind of peace or some concessions or whatever and end the war quickly. But he also says here like maybe Bragg can invade Kentucky and that that's almost like a farcical invasion compared to the one in Maryland. But it does happen. I mean, in the West, Bragg does try to to invade Kentucky, and that's, that's also disastrous. Uh, maybe even more so than the Battle of Antietam, and and that probably just weakened in general another step backwards in the Western Western Theater. Troops that probably would have been better served in holding Vicksburg, which was really was the key piece in all that, and you know that would fall within I don't know seven eight months of of this. I think the Vicksburg campaign starts to get going not long after this, um, or at least. I guess after the winter, I suppose, but, but it does seem he has got some kind of very vague idea of like going on the offensive, but without the planning, without uh, much of a strategy. It just seems really, really stupid when I I read this document, I I, I don't get it fully. Um, Maybe it's because that's all Lee really knew what to do. (laughs) Maybe someone who knows more about this can can tell me about it. It just seems like a really, really stupid move. So far, I've not been too impressed with Robert E. Lee in these documents. I I don't get the lost causers who who idealize him, I suppose. Um, All right. um, Next, we have George Templeton Strong. We haven't seen him in a while. Uh, I was hoping to get more of him because he is a good writer. And, you know, he was writing, you know, a huge diary, much of which involved the Civil War from new york but this is a good one it's dated september 3rd and 4th and it's in the aftermath of the second battle of bull run and it just shows the despair at the union position and the the waste of life how these campaigns like the peninsula campaign and the others are just draining life wasting life for no appreciable goals like nothing you can see and say ah yeah we we may have lost a bunch of men in this battle but we're, we're a step closer to achieving strategic victory and that he knows it, who is just an observer, means the the commanders must have known it, and Lincoln must have known it. So this frustration is probably a reflection of of a, rea- of, a of a of a reality, right? Um, where like lives are being lost by the thousands without any any clear gain. Um, kind of connected to this is we get a letter by a guy named William Thompson Lush to his I think it's his wife. Uh, where he's a soldier and he's kind of saying the same stuff. He says the army is disheartened. And he even says at one point, we're just going to fight a new battle and that's just going to be another disaster. And that's just going to lead to another battle and another disaster. And that's just the world we live in. Uh, Too bad. Um, Kind of a, a rather depressing take from a soldier's point of view. He writes, for instance, new preparations are made with all the old errors errors retained. New battles are prepared for to end in new disasters. Alas, my poor country, the army is sadly demoralized. Men feel that there's no honor to be gained by the sword. No military service is recognized unless coupled with political interest. The army is exhausted with suffering. Its enthusiasm is dead. Should the enemy attack us here, however, we should be victorious. The men will never yield up their capital, end quote, which... This might be part of the context of Lee's invasion, of just a sense maybe the army's on the brink and a victory there would maybe lead to a greater collapse of the northern military. But even he's saying "as like as fucked as we are, and it seems to be, you know, we're still gonna defend our, our homeland and it's not like it's imminent collapse. He's just talking about demoralization, right? Um you know, we all we, we all feel that from time to time in our jobs, I suppose, where things just are not going well, but it doesn't necessarily mean that everything is necessarily falling apart. It's it's, uh, it's a challenge to be overcome by good commanders, good management, or, or whatever. So anyways, uh, what's, what's next? Uh, oh, I didn't write notes on this. So I guess it is 25 documents. I skipped one. Um, this is a famous uh, little note and it's something we talked about with the Lincoln series, but it's Lincoln's meditation on the divine will, which was a private note he wrote to himself where he, you know, I'll just read the whole thing because it's uh, worth uh, pondering, I suppose, uh, to get into Lincoln's mind a little bit. It says, the will of God prevails. In great contest, each party claims to act in accordance with the will of God. Both may be, and one must be wrong. God cannot be for and against the same thing at the same time. In the present civil war, it is quite possible that God's purpose is something different from the purpose of either party, and yet the human instrumentalities, working just as they do, are of the best adaptation to affect his purpose. I am almost ready to say that this is probably true, that God wills this contest and wills that it should, shall not end yet. By his mere quiet power, on the minds not of the now contestants, he could have either saved or destroyed the union without a human contest. Yet the contest began and having begun, he could give the final victory to either side any day. Yet the contest proceeds. This of course is uh, almost a prelude to the second inaugural address. Uh, Yeah, so next we have uh, Lord Palmerston and Lord Russell exchanging letters, uh, basically about after all these defeats by the union, you know, basically proffering up the idea of a confederate or a, a recognizing the confederacy by England of course that doesn't happen and there's a bunch of reasons for that whether it's southern slavery or the diplomacy of charles francis adams or or timely union victories happening when they do but obviously britain never did recognize the the confederacy but there were people in britain talking about it right saying You know this invasion of maryland could go really bad for the federals and if it does we got to maybe rethink our policy here about that and both sides um both palmerston and lord russell here are, are basically on the same page saying it may be necessary to do that at some point um the next document we have is robert e lee again writing to jefferson davis uh after crossing the potomac and invading maryland and again it's it kind of shows uh maybe a lack of planning i suppose um but more so it it kind of gets to maybe another part of lee's thinking i think there's not a clear strategy i'm really convinced of that now that this this campaign was pretty misguided from the beginning but he's got some he groks an idea that like if we can win a battle on northern soil that may change the electorate that may shift the political fortunes of lincoln and let someone else come into political power and i think there's like midterm elections coming up at this point right in the november of 62 so that's part of the timing for sure and you know i should remember that it seems to have been something i remembered reading about in another book at one point but uh here he says that's that's part of our goal too and if we can do that, we could maybe get a piece that's beneficial to us. Um, so now we get, in this uh, selection of documents, just a whole bunch of memoirs, accounts, reflections on on the Battle of Antietam. Uh, so we got, for instance, uh, Louis H. Steiner, uh, who was a physician, uh, who is serving in this town uh what is it frederick maryland he's serving and he you know witnesses the confederate um invasion and what's what this document's good for is like a nice window into like you know how they how the confederate army survived how they interacted with the locals and how they were received so it seems one reason the locals didn't really like them very much is that they were essentially looting them, um, paying for stuff with Confederate script, which was worthless. They didn't have U.S. dollars. They didn't have gold. They were just essentially taking what they want, it, leaving paper behind with a really, really vague promise that, that they'd get it back. So it's just plunder, which armies do, right? Uh, this would, this was done at other points, right? The march to the sea was was kind of funded in part by plundering the local. Uh, countryside and and local farmers and things like that but uh yeah that's what's happening here but what this does is it just um he also says like that the the confederates just come in with this real hatred of of the northerners and even people in maryland so it makes them not really likable as occupiers or invaders um and this isn't an occupation right this is just troops moving through largely until they get to the battlefield this isn't you know, land's not really being occupied or controlled. It's just people moving through, just passing through. But as they pass through, they're not making any friends and they're not really behaving in a manner that's likely to gain them any friends. So again, I think that's a leadership issue or a, just, a, a, you know, and a, ne- a kind of a, from the, from, I guess, least strategic, or it's a lack of, it's showing a lack of Lee's strategic mindedness. You know it's a very different situation than than what like grant well, what like Sherman is dealing with in in Georgia where the rebellion is still active right um especially if if the goal here is partially to you know quote-unquote liberate the secessionists in Maryland who seem to be a dwindling number at this point it's it, you know what's the point of being kind of nasty about it so anyways, a lot of this comes up in Lewis uh, Steiner's diary. Um, oh, the next one also uh, is James Richard Boulware. Uh So we got about 10 days of his diary entries here. And this um, is interesting because this uh, also talks about local resistance uh, to, to the invaders. If I can find where he talks about it. Um, yeah people like closing shops people refusing to sell things quote-unquote sell uh to confederates trying to avoid uh interacting with them you know just a general attitude that of 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 hostility towards the invaders so it seems there wasn't much thought put in to how you're actually going to sustain this campaign, I guess, in the in the terms of the local politics, the interactions with the local people, and we'll see if anything changes the Gettysburg campaign. I don't I guess not, I suppose. But we'll see. Um Yeah, this one this one was kind of good. Um Oh, here. Uh The ladies would have buckets. Oh, this this letter is this is actually by a Confederate, this diary. So Richard James Bullwear is actually a Confederate marching through and he, so anyways i this is still the sense i got from it is that they're not really making themselves much liked quote orders not to pillage apples and orange and cornfields were strictly enjoyed on us the lady kindly gave me as many as i wished to carry the ladies would have buckets of water at the door and give to the thirsty soldiers as they marched by one said remember union lady is giving you water in one instance a woman as we passed through minutes and came out of a yard and be mean to our soldiers at a terrible rate I'm glad to say it's the only instance so far. We camped. No name for the place. Two rations went to sleep after eating my supper on beef kidney. So maybe a little bit of a, of a more positive take than the previous document, but still pretty... I still get the sense here that they're they're not really well liked. That it's pretty begrudging aid that they gave. Um, so next... Oh, so the next document, this is the Lost Order. So this is kind of important to include just as uh, a document of historical significance even if it has very little literary interest and this is uh, uh, uh basically a letter was was intercepted um, it was actually like a copy of, of Lee's instructions to the commanders for dividing up his army and, and achieving their goals and capturing um like the caption of harper's ferry and and things like that things that they did during the campaign it was like the the plans were written on a uh, like a cocktail napkin or whatever and it was found a copy of this was found and it got to george McClellan, and he famously said like if i can't whip bobby lee with this i'll just give up and of course he does beat him uh even though the battle was pretty pretty nasty pretty bloody but uh you know the plans here i don't know i guess a general could make sense and decide what to do in response to this but uh, but this is like a document of historical importance not so much uh, of any literary interest so that's like our accounts of the invasion itself and um the next with the local people and then that brings us to the accounts of the battle itself um, and we start out with uh george w smalley's uh narrative of Antietam, which was published in the new york daily tribune this is one of those battle pieces that were published throughout the war and this is one of the better ones uh, apparently you know praised by others but really a lot of amazing detail the amount of material that must have been collected and the interviews he must have had to have done to collect this document is, is actually pretty amazing i think so uh that is one definitely to check out um now a lot a lot of these are in like later memoirs, like one from the Six Wisconsin Volunteers, an 1890 memoir focusing on the more grassroots experience of soldiers, the battle, uh, you know, at the Battle of the Cornfield. Uh, one I really liked was another later memoir by a guy named David L. Thompson, which was a uh, a really nice grassroots account as well, um, showing just the you know the brutality of the battle at the local level or at the at the individual level and the unit level um so we got we got a handful of nice accounts here i think these were more or less pretty riveting well chosen. i usually found these kind of battle memoirs a little hard to get through at times but but i found these pretty good um uh another kind of at the time sort of response was Samuel Fisher's letter to the Springfield Republic, uh, which talks about Lee's defeat, but also the general waste of, of, of war and the brutality of these battles. Of course, you know one reason I think the Library of America focuses so much on this account or the editors focus so much on this battle, these accounts of the battle, is it, it was the bloodiest day in American history, right? It wasn't the bloodiest battle, but it was the bloodiest single day in, in American history um and so we're worth meditating on i suppose and and you know the the frustration of even in this case even though it was a union victory it's like what did we really gain from this right it's we stopped this invasion perhaps but there was no follow-through there was and there was some frustration about that as there would be after gettysburg about why why not really crush lee when you have the chance but that's not how war works right not certainly not wars of this type which were bound to be long dragged out affairs. That's something Gideon Wells sort of comes to the conclusion of as we'll see in a little bit. We got a couple of women's accounts too. Um, One is uh, Clifton um, Johnson's Battlefield uh, Adventures. That was a book he wrote in like 1915, which was based on interviews with people who saw battles, Civil War battles. And so he interviewed a local woman a couple years before this book was published so she was like an old woman at this point, but she was much younger when um, the battle was fought. So she, she was built based on her memories. And it's another really good grass uh, roots view of the battle itself. She talks, for instance, about how the... the the general loyalist attitude of Maryland. By this point, she talks about the large number of Confederate deserters there, which must've been a big strain on the Confederate army as well. And also really some nice scenes where they witness the battle from like a, from a window, they watch it, you know, the battle just outside the window and what they see. It's a really, really kind of fascinating document, which I enjoyed reading. Um, Then we have one by a woman named Mary Mitchell, which is her reminiscence of the Battle of Antietam. And I think this one isn't quite as um, fun to read, I suppose, but, um, but that's, that's a more, I think that's, that's a letter. That's one is in a letter. So it's a, that was written right at the time. So that was another reminiscence of Antietam, but that's also from a woman's point of view, Uh, witnessing the battle, seeing and I think she saw more. She wasn't like watching all through a window. She was moving around a little bit. So she saw more, uh, I guess, of the battlefield and the outcome and the bodies and the, the wounded and all that stuff. Um, so that, that kind of, that's more or less the accounts we get. So there's quite a few of them here. And it makes a big chunk of the the bulk of this, of this section of the text. Um, now, after this, we kind of get to the... The aftermath of the of the battle and so the first we get is george mcclellan writing to his wife again and see, this is not a these th- these letters to his wife generally don't make him look very good as i said before and it's certainly true here where he reports on the victory but his conclusion is like my reputation has been saved my military reputation has been saved and that's the real you know victory here and it's it's kind of distasteful to be honest it's like so many people are like the union lost something like 12,000 men wounded, killed. And, and I talked in a previous episode about, you know, there's those who were killed in the battlefield, but there's those who are maimed for life. Those who would die later of wounds, those who would die later of illness because, you know, because they were wounded on the battlefield. So, you know, if it says like two, 2000 killed and so many injured, a lot of those people who were wounded would die later or have their lives forever changed by it. They are losses, right? Um, <clears throat> But his response to it is like oh my reputation is cleared i finally proven myself victorious my strategy my way of building up this army it's worked right and my reputation will will rise now of course lincoln is going to use uh i think it's mcclellan's failure to really follow up on the victory to to replace him eventually um as active commander of the of the army uh, what else do we have? Oh, we got one document, one ba- one thing about the Battle of Ayuka. I want to say this is like Bragg's invasion of Kentucky on the west, or on the west. It's like the parallel invasion of the north, and this uh, a much more decisive Confederate defeat from this. From the sound of this particular document, um, I don't know too much about this invasion, but it seems it was uh, an attempt to try to hoping two, two invasions might be more successful than just one and they both they both failed obviously um now where we get kind of into politics now and to the build up to the emancipation proclamation is the is kind of what we're left with talking about and the first thing we get is Gideon wells reflections on the cabinet meeting of september 22nd and so this was the president's meeting with his cabinet on the issue of emancipation and there seems to be broad agreement uh, with Lincoln on this, although there's discussions on the legality and the practicality and the politics of it. And there's some concerns about the politics of it. Of it. But I, I really enjoyed Gideon Wells's, now he's like the Secretary of the Navy, right? I really enjoyed his reflection on it. He's saying the popular opinion, and this may have been something cultivated by Lincoln by this point, is that, and this is how, partially how he sold emancipation, to the Northern audience was to say, this is gonna speed up the war, right? If the South doesn't have anything to fight for, the war will end, right? And that's certainly part of the reason for the Emancipation Proclamation. But, you know, Wells here says, this is nonsense. The war is gonna go on for quite a while longer. Uh, and I think more and more people are coming to that conclusion uh, that like Sherman had and and Grant was coming to have, that this was gonna be a long, long war. And Wells is one of those people. Um, even McClellan was saying that, as we saw in previous documents, that this was just going to grind and grind and grind. Um, but still, there's, there's this idea that emancipation might speed along the war, and he just doesn't buy it. But nevertheless, he thinks this is a, a knot that has to be cut. This has to be an issue that has to be set aside, uh, and, but it's not going to bring peace, right? He, so he's saying we need to pursue emancipation, but, but don't fool yourself that this is going to bring peace. So uh, another, I think, well-established, educated guess there. That turned out to be true. Next, we have a a couple of Lincoln's orders in the aftermath of the Battle of Antietam. The first is the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, which I probably don't have to say too much about. Uh, As I think everyone knows, this only freed slaves in areas in rebellion, not some areas under Union occupation, and not in the border states. So it didn't fully end slavery, it would be the 13th Amendment that would do that, but it did free slaves in places under Confederate control. So kind of the joke is this doesn't technically free anyone, because obviously it wouldn't be applied. But it did, it it did, it was significant because it told enslaved men and women who heard about it that they were free, and they, many took that seriously and, and fled uh their plantations and the preliminary emancipation proclamation also talked about arming um black people um and former slaves the second document here is the suspension of habeas corpus for rebels um um, this is not the first time he he did it early in his presidency to get you know on the rail lines to get congress in i think we talked a little bit about that before but this was a more broader suspension of habeas corpus for rebels or people who were not loyal Um, so next we have a, uh, kind of a journalistic account and I got a journalist named Ellie White, Whiteley, um, writing to a guy named James Gordon Bennett, which is about the reaction to the Emancipation Proclamation. And there's two things in this letter. It's a letter, but it's basically like, what's the feeling out there? And and one, maybe these are contradictory perspectives, but, um, they might be coming out the same sense of frustration. One is that? Uh, this idea that there needs to be a change in leadership um, Among soldiery and among The population So the soldiers he's reporting here Seem to be pretty loyal to McClellan And even ideal he, They even idealize him So getting rid of him is not going to be easy But at the same time There there might be some frustration with Lincoln So it's uh, You know politically sensitive time With an election coming up and everything But At the same time, he says there seems to be a lot of support for emancipation. And he's writing from Kentucky. And isn't Kentucky like the one state that didn't ratify the 13th Amendment until like the 80s or some ridiculous time or the 90s? Um, So, but he's saying in Kentucky, people largely support it as a means to to end the war. Um, Next document we have is George McClellan writing to a friend where he's saying, what do you think of these policies he's talking about the emancipation proclamation and the suspension of habeas corpus for supporters of the rebellion and you can tell mcclellan is already you know he he complained about this earlier he's like don't make this a war this war a social revolution don't change things too much it's it's going to be a long drawn-out war but don't make it worse by adding these other issues let's keep focused on the military um and you can tell he's he's waiting for his moment to maybe uh to defend himself right defend his position i think that he's trying to build up evidence to defend his own position that's how i'm reading this and the final document i want to talk about in this selection oh, the final one that comes up is uh is abraham lincoln firing a guy named john uh, my notes are my handwriting so bad um john key major john key who was a i think he was like an, in the part of the war department staff and here's what he said. This was the report that Lincoln got, that he said this. He said, um, quote, the object, is, this is about after Antietam. why there wasn't an immediate kind of attack on Lee's forces. And he said to another, to, is it another soldier? Yeah. So someone asked him, like, why didn't you just attack Lee? And, and he said, that's not the game. The object is that neither army should get much advantage of the other, that both shall be kept in the field till they are exhausted when we will make a compromise and save slavery which isn't true that's not the reason any there was certainly lincoln wanted to destroy the southern army wasn't trying to just hold out to uh, save slavery i don't think there's any reason to think that but uh major key was eventually this got to lincoln and lincoln evaluated and eventually dismissed him as for making traitorous comments he writes it is, in, it's in my view, is wholly inadmissible for any gentleman holding a military commission from the United States to utter such sentiments as Major Key is with within proof to have done. Therefore, let me, Major John Key be forthwith dismissed from the military service of the United States. So, um, you know, he's pissed off that he's calling it a game, that he's besmirching the motives of the president, I guess, and the commitment of the, of the, the officer corps to winning the battle winning the war um but yeah not wise comments that this person made but maybe a sign of a little frustration and like and with with the lack of of movement uh after after the victory at antietam so anyways uh that's all i really want to say in this this bit um you know, I think a pretty nice window. I think this is a nice collection of different perspectives on the Battle of Antietam, uh, and and a little bit on emancipation. I wish I would add more on that, I suppose, and more of the broader discourse in in media. But I think we're going to get that in maybe the the, the next episode. We'll, we'll get like we'll, Emerson's reply. I think a lot of the next episode will cover some of the broader responses abroad and at home to the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, we're also going to get the Battle of Perryville um, and and McClellan's dismissal. I think it's going to be a more exciting episode, to be honest. I, I think the next one is going to have a little bit more different topics to talk about, not just blowing in on on the one battle. And I think it's also going to give us a little bit more time to reflect on on emancipation and what it meant to different groups. So I'm excited to begin the next uh, reading the next set of documents. So as, as I've already said, I'm really behind. Um, I, I always promise to try to speed it up, but but we'll see. We'll see where life takes me. But I'm going to try to start reading these right away. So uh, I guess that's going to be it for now. Um, let me know if you have any thoughts about this. If you read these documents and have your own perspectives on these, let me know what they are. You can send me an email at 100 pagescastgmailcom at gmail.com. But I guess that'll be it for now. Uh, Thanks for listening and sorry for the delay.